Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, mamas. I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and today it's time for our monthly mailbag on the Smart Money Mama Show. I'll be answering questions directly from listeners like you. Today, we're going to discuss saving for retirement for stay-at-home spouses, investing for kids, when to create an LLC for your business, handling taxes as a business owner, and more. For an overview of this month's questions and to download your free Money Mama's Guide to Investing, head over to the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 53. As one final reminder, for these mailbag episodes, we source questions from our free Mamas Talk Money community on Facebook, which we'd love to have you join, and our voicemail, where you can leave me an audio message at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash voicemail. So if you have a question you'd love to hear us tackle, head to one of those places and submit your questions. All right, all right, it's time to get started. Lauren actually couldn't dive in with me today to MC your Q&A, but I think you and I can handle it, right? Let's dive in. Our first questions are from Debbie. Her first question is, my husband stays home with the baby, so no retirement account yet. What would be the best account to open for him? Spousal IRA or his own, he makes some money. Doesn't matter. So spousal IRA is this idea that you can still create an IRA account even if you don't have earned income if you are a stay-at-home spouse, right? So if you don't earn any money, but your spouse does, and you filed jointly, you have to be filing for taxes jointly, they can create an IRA. But a spousal IRA isn't actually its own type of account. It's just a standard IRA. And so it doesn't matter where you open it. It's still going to be an IRA in his own name. It'll just be treated as a spousal IRA if he doesn't have much earned income. As far as whether he's eligible, you have to be married filing jointly. And then there's an income phase out for it to qualify for the tax deduction on a traditional or a Roth basis. And so for 2020, that phase out starts at $104,000 a year and completely phases out by $124,000 a year. So if you make more money than that, the IRA is not going to help him from a tax perspective anyway. You're better off just putting it in a taxable account. Uh, If you make less than that, it's just the same. He's just going to open an IRA. And so this actually qualifies for anyone who's a stay-at-home parent. If you're a stay-at-home mom and you want to have some of your own retirement assets, or you just want to be able to put more money away as a family and get those tax benefits, instead of being capped out at the $6,000 that one person could do, you could do $12,000 as a family, each in your own $6,000 accounts. But you do have the ability to do that and get some extra tax benefits, which is really great. Debbie's second question is, if I want to open an investment account but not have to monitor it all the time, would I need a robo-advisor like Elevest, or is there an option with Fidelity or Vanguard that's fairly hands-off and doesn't have the quarter percent fee? Great question, Debbie. So there's a lot of different ways you can do this. Elevest has actually switched its model, so it's now a membership model, and so you pay a certain flat fee a month, no matter how much you have invested. So I think it starts at a dollar and goes up to five or $9. And as you get higher, um, you get broader access to support. You can talk to CFPs for support and things like that. And that one to $9 can either be a really super low fee if you have a lot of investments in that account or a really high fee if you only have like $50 in that account, right? Because then the percentage basis gets really high. So that's how they work. But robo-advisors in general, when you're talking about a Betterment or a Wealthfront that still operate in that model, yes, they have a quarter percent fee. Your other options for robos, by the way, though, are something like Ally or SoFi or M1 Finance that 
are robo-advisors, but they don't charge a fee in that way. And so you could have it hands-off that way. So that's all about robos. If you wanted to do it yourself, but not have to monitor it all the time, you can absolutely do that with Fidelity and Vanguard. There's two ways to do that. One, you could buy an all-in, what we call an all-in-one fund. So this would be like a target date retirement fund or a lifestyle goal fund that you select when you're going to want that money. So if you want to retire in 2050, you select the 2050 target retirement fund and it will balance your asset allocation and everything for you. They also have like moderate and long-term growth plans as well if you're more saving for like a retirement or a vacation home in 10 years. So that's one option. The fees are slightly higher than doing an index fund, but you're talking like 0.15% and there's no underlying fees. And so that is a good option. The other option is simply creating a two fund or three fund portfolio. These are very, very simple portfolios. So it's literally just a total stock market index fund, a total bond market index fund, and a total international stock market index fund if you want to do the three funds. And so we'll link an article to that in the show notes of how that works. But you're putting it in based on your risk allocation, how much you want in stock and bonds. And every deposit, you have it automatically set to split on that amount. And then so for someone like me who runs that type of account, I go in and check it every six to 12 months rebalancing is not something that has to happen every day. There's actually a lot of research that suggests that like doing it daily versus doing it every three months, six months, or 12 months is not going to make a big difference. As long as you remember to do it on some regular basis, you don't want to leave it for 20 years. So it can't be fairly hands-off without you having to watch it like every day. I think a lot of new investors worry about having to constantly monitor their investments and that would not be the case. And so when you talk about those options, I think you could talk, you could look at another robo that maybe doesn't have the quarter percent fee, like an ally, or you could go to a Fidelity or a Vanguard, buy a target date fund. The fees are going to be lower on that, or just do it yourself with a two or three fund portfolio. We'll link on how to do that in the show notes. But those are great options. Just make sure that you're actually not checking in on it every day or every week. That's where we see the swings in the market and we start to get emotional about where our money is going and then we trade too often and it drives actually lower performance over time. So actually just kind of putting the blindfold on and continually investing without panicking, without changing your strategy all the time, that's usually the best place to go. Sound good? Our next question is from Nicole, and she asks, I have a system of paying my kids where they put in 40% of that money into an investment account, quote unquote. We match what they put in dollar for dollar, so they're incentivized to save. They're not allowed to have access to this money until they're 18. This money currently sits in an online savings account with a higher than average savings rate. But with rates getting so low right now, I'm wanting to move this money to an actual investment account for each of my kids, not 529s. We already have those. I'm wondering what is the best way to do this for my kids, ages 11, 9, 8, and 5, that can get a better than 1% return on their money, a UTMA, or just a general investment account? Great question, Nicole. For those of you who don't know, a UTMA is a Uniform Trust for Minors account. And so the way this works is that it's in custody of the parent until the child becomes an adult. That depends a little bit on the state and the account, but it's sometime between the ages of 18 and 21. And so, Nicole, if you put money in one of those accounts, as soon as your child reaches the age of majority, that is their account. You're not actually legally allowed to take money out of it. And even once you put money in, If you put money into their account and wanted to take it out for something that is not for the child, you're not actually supposed to do that. How they police that is is difficult, but you're not 
supposed to take it out unless it's for them, unless it's money for them. And so a UTMA account can be a great option if you're okay completely putting it in their hands. When you ask, or just a general investment account, a UTMA can be a general investment account. So if you mean a general account under your name, that's an option too. You could create a taxable account, you could name it for your child, and you could save for them, and then you decide once they reach adulthood whether you're going to turn it over to them. That's entirely a valid decision, and if you're someone who wants to make sure they're responsible enough to have this money in the future, that's an option. As far as where you can open a UTMA... You can do that at Vanguard or Fidelity for the same way you would do a standard account, right? So you can pick low-fee investments, you can pick index fund investments, and that's a really good option. If you're looking for a better return long-term, you might have a slightly higher percentage of bonds if you want to make sure it's money that they could use for college or after college or setting up a business that maybe isn't 20 years away, 15 years away just to make sure you're managing the risk. But if you continue to help them invest consistently and you don't let them pull it out you know, in a market downturn, that can be a way to have a better than 1% return on that money, absolutely. The one other thing you might wanna consider, um, actually two things. One is if you wanna take some of that money and really teach them a little bit about the markets, there's a cool new app out there called Loved, L-O-V-E-D, that is a custodial accounts for kids stock app. And so you can buy ETFs, low fee ETFs in there that are more kind of general index funds. You can buy shares of stocks. And what's great is that they actually have fractional trading available. So if your kid was really interested in Disney or in Nike or in whatever they're interested in, they, and those stocks can get expensive, right? Some of these are 200 bucks a share plus they can actually buy a piece of a share with as little as $5. And so if you wanted to teach them a little bit about the markets, maybe take a small percentage that they get to invest on their own and learn together, that's a great place. The second thing I wanted to mention was that if your children have earned income, so your 11-year-old, for instance, if they babysit for anybody else, if they mow lawns for other people, and you track that income, they are eligible for a Roth IRA, which is a great way to save for retirement and get some tax benefits for sure. But also they will always have access to the principal amount. And so if they wanted to take it out, um, and there's also certain withdrawal limitations for if you wanted to buy your first house or if you're paying for college, Roth IRAs allow you to do that. All of these options though, UTMAs, anything that is in your child's name and custodial in your child's name, the one thing I remind parents about is that that impacts financial aid for college much more significantly than if it was in your name. So if it's in your name, it's going to hit financial aid eligibility by like 5.24%. And obviously this will change over time. And so, but for right now, it's like 5.24%. If it is in your child's name, it reduces their financial aid eligibility by 20%. And so this is another thing to think about if you are not going to be fully cash funding their college and that they might be eligible for financial aid or for scholarships, this is a place where you might want to keep it in your name and just mark it for them and tell them that have some agreement as a family of when they'll have access to that money. But this kind of practice, investment matching, teaching them from an early age about investing, that's really exciting and really fun. So congratulations. That's, That's great. All right, let's take a quick break from all these investing questions for a side hustle question. Kirsten, who is actually a guest on this podcast in episode 20 and who is the founder of Rich and Regular, she asks, when does it make sense to register a side hustle as an LLC? (laughs) This is such a good question. And the wise person would tell you to go consult a local business attorney to figure this out which is a good good piece of advice always. I would say that pretty much any business attorney is going to tell you to form an LLC for protection. 
That being said, we are all sole proprietors immediately. So we can run a business just with our social security number from the get-go. And there are plenty of brick and mortar businesses or larger businesses that run that way for a really long time. Where it gets concerning is when you have significant personal assets that you want to keep separate from the business. And so if you're running your business as a sole proprietorship and someone brings a lawsuit against you, they can claim damages up to claiming your personal wealth as well. Whereas if you had an LLC, which is a limited liability corporation, the limit, the liability is limited to your business entity. And so any money you've pulled out of there that is currently sitting in your private accounts, that is not accessible in the vast majority of cases. And so when you talk about when to form an LLC, many attorneys, many people will tell you to do it right away for safety's sake. And absolutely, if you're someone who has a large net worth or a lot of assets, that is excellent advice form an LLC. In most states, it's really not that expensive and it's a pretty fast process. You can even create kind of an umbrella LLC. And when you form an LLC, it asks you what your business practices are. And so for us, like we, our business practices are making money online broadly. Like we haven't limited it down to some specific thing. And so when we start other parts of the business, it all falls under that umbrella. So if you're not sure what you're going to do yet, you can do that as well. You can create an LLC, you know, under your name with a broad definition. That's completely fine. When you're just getting started, if you don't have a lot of capital or you're not sure what you're going to do, I think this is a place where you can run for a sole, as a sole proprietor for six months, for a year, decide like you're going to keep it that way until the business is making X amount or until the business is doing public speaking or on TV or something that you're a little bit more concerned about liability. Giving nutrition advice is definitely a place where you want an LLC because you're, you know, you have people's health in your hands and things like that then you want to form an LLC. The practice is really quite simple. It's a form you file with your state and that's really it. So I would do it as soon as, if it's a full-time business, absolutely. If you have significant personal assets, absolutely. You're ultimately going to want one. I think it's in most cases, it's so cheap to have one in the grand scheme of business expenses, but don't let that be what holds you back from getting started. And so Kirsten, I know you have a very successful business, but for people who are listening to this that are like, oh, I just want to start a shop on Etsy, don't think you need to go pay $300, $400, $500 to form an LLC. But if you're a business making $20,000, $30,000 a year or more, right, six figures, seven figures, it makes sense to pay that, that amount to get your LLC certificate. Once again, we're going to come back to the beginning. Speak to a, a local business attorney, speak to your accountant, see what makes sense for you. But in most cases for us, what we did was I ran the business as a sole proprietorship for the first 10 months until I left my job to do this full time, in which case we formed the LLC and made it a business. The next question is back to investing for a minute. It comes from Kelly and she asks, I opened a Roth IRA with Vanguard. I have a SEP IRA, traditional, and overall I tend to go the broad-based index funds route. But is there anything to keep in mind when allocating funds to get the most tax advantage? What considerations should someone take when allocating funds in a Roth versus a traditional IRA? Ah, this is a high-level, complex question, Kelly. I love it. Okay. In general, you want to have any kind of income-generating investments in some kind of IRA. So really, when we talk about allocating in the best possible way, most people are talking about what do I put in my taxable versus any kind of retirement account. And so the reason for that is if you have bonds or you have high paying dividend stocks that are generating payments every quarter or every few months, every six months, those payments can be taxed at the income level as opposed to capital gains. And so it can draw a lot of 
income tax, what we call like headwind from your ability to earn money long term. Whereas if those stay in some kind of IRA, Roth or traditional, those are tax deferred investments. So you don't have to worry about it. You don't pay taxes on those things and you can have more money staying in your account to continue to grow. That's awesome. When we're talking about Roth versus traditional, we have our income earning investments in either account. That's fine. The thing you want to think about is the fact that a traditional IRA, when you take that money out, you're going to pay income taxes on any money that you take out. With a Roth, as long as you're over 59 and a half, any money you take out is not taxed. It's not taxed for capital gains and it's not taxed for income because it was already taxed for income before you put it in your Roth. And so you want to ultimately have more assets, hopefully, in your Roth that you're pulling from than your traditional because you're not going to get hit with income tax when you pull it out. And so in that case, you want your higher growing, bigger yield paying investments in your Roth versus a traditional IRA. So if you were optimizing, you might put your bond index fund in a traditional IRA and in your Roth, put your stock index fund or your dividend growth stock index fund in your Roth, right? And so this is like we said, guys, at the beginning, an advanced strategy. This is really going to depend on your situation. Kelly, without knowing your whole picture, I'm just talking to you about the philosophy here. This is not necessarily what you should do. But when we're trying to really hyper optimize, that's the types of things that we think of. Can we put higher growth investments in our Roth? Can we make sure that any income generating assets, dividends, or interest is in some kind of IRA, either one. And then keep our taxable accounts if you have them, maybe non-dividend paying stocks. But keep in mind that simplicity is the goal here. All of these things can add a couple basis points of benefits if you do them right and if you do them consistently. But if all of this sounds confusing, if trying to figure out asset allocation over all of your accounts when you're separating where your bonds are, where your stocks are, you don't have to do it. This is advanced level stuff. It can be beneficial on the margin, but don't overthink it too much either. Okay, we're at our final question for this month's mailbag. This one is about side hustles, and it comes from Lindsay. Lindsay says, I have a new virtual assistant business, but it's the first time I've worked without having taxes taken out, and I'm nervous about owing a lot at the end of the year. What should I keep in mind to prepare? Lindsay, I'm so glad you're thinking about this at the beginning of your business because I know way too many people who did their first year of side hustling, loved it, were so excited, and then bam, got hit with that big tax bill. And so the deal here is that no one is withholding your taxes, not your federal income tax, not your state income tax, and not what we call the self-employment tax, which would be social security withholding and like Medicare withholding. And so all of that you have to pay. And so the way they set that up for contractors is that you can actually pay on a quarterly basis. And if you use a bookkeeping software, which I highly recommend, I really like FreshBooks or Quicken Self-Employed to track it, there'll be a little number at the top of your screen always that'll remind you of how much you currently owe for quarterly taxes. And so that's one way to make sure you're staying on top of it and that you pay your quarterly taxes on time. The second thing that I really love is I'm a huge fan of the book Profit First. So especially if you're thinking of scaling this business over time, or you just want to keep it as profitable as possible, I would buy the book Profit First and read it through. And one of the things it talks about is taking one, your profit out first, but two, then setting aside your taxes. And so when money comes in, if you make $500, instead of saying, woohoo, I made $500, I'm going to go spend $500 worth of stuff, set aside a little bit of for profit, and then take 30% and dump it in a tax fund. You might not owe that much, especially if you have other expenses in your business that reduce your overall profitability, but you want to have that money set aside so that when the tax bill comes, you have more than enough 
And then you can decide to take the rest of that money out. But I would get in the practice of setting aside 25 to 30% of every check that comes in, in a tax account for when you owe taxes and get in the habit of having proper bookkeeping. When you're small with a VA business, maybe you only have one or two clients, you could probably track that in a spreadsheet. But I really recommend getting used to using something like FreshBooks, something like Quick and Self-Employed that will guide you through, that will help you mark and save receipts so that when it gets to tax time at the end of the year, whether you use an accountant or you're doing it yourself, everything is ready to go. And you're not going through that real panic point before taxes are due where you're trying to find things. So getting in that habit early is great. I'm so glad you asked that question. Huh. This, this is a great Q&A this month. These, these episodes are some of my absolute favorites. I really love getting to hear from all of you and answer your very specific, unique questions. And I know it helps other people hear how other mamas are thinking about their money. In August, I'm going to give you guys a heads up. We're going to be talking about purpose and passion, sharing stories from moms who have built these incredible businesses and careers and teaching you how you can make money doing what you love. As I mentioned at the top of the show, feel free to send me your questions anytime via our voicemail at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash voicemail on social media or in our Mamas Talk Money free Facebook group. My friend, thank you for listening to the Smart Money Mamas show. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell your friends. I truly appreciate it. Keep talking money, mama. I'll see you next time. <laughs>